Mike Walsh, and you're listening to Between Worlds, the show that takes you over the horizon and beyond borders to bring you the global thinkers, innovators, and troublemakers whose ideas challenge the world as we know it. My guest today is Natalie Panic. Uh, she's a rocket scientist, an adventurer, and an advocate for women in technology. And we're in Toronto. This isn't your hometown, though, although you are Canadian, right, Natalie? Yes, Canadian. My home is Calgary in the Rockies. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's a bit like that. those opening scenes from the movie Interstellar, isn't it? Yeah. You know, a very sort of rural, um, beautiful, natural surroundings, and then sort of the, the contrast of, of, of being so focused on space. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what, what was it that sort of initially inspired you to you know, build a career in, in space travel? I think growing up in the Rockies, I spent a lot of time camping, hiking, and then, of course, at night when the sun sets, the stars come out to play. And, and, and you can then, actually see the stars in California. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and just the stargazing and seeing the constellations and looking to track the International Space Station. And then also watching a lot of sci-fi, like Stargate SG-1, kind of was the perfect ingredients for this long-term dream of space travel and being fascinated by what's out there. Did it disappoint you when you finally got old enough to realize that it wasn't going to be as easy as SG-1? <laughs> 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 well, I, I, I think there's something great about sci-fi in that it, it stretches your imagination and opens up a world of possibilities. Even if our reality right now isn't like that, it gives you something to dream about and something that maybe one day will be a reality for one generation yeah, I mean, national sp space programs have always sort of been tied into that idea of dreaming and destiny. Uh, it's sort of extraordinary now to think about how much was achieved back in the, in the 60s and 70s. And only now, with all of our technology, have other countries like India and China managed to get closer to what we, what we achieved like 30, 40 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. And I think the beauty of the space world now is that there's so many more international players and what I'd love to see in the future is more international collaboration because space exploration is really a global endeavor it's not national and I think historically that's the way it was with the space race and um, the United States and, and Russia kind of competing to be the first to do this and the first to do that but I would love to see more collaboration between countries trying to achieve big feats in space. What, what, how has the entrance of commercial players like you know Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos into the space industry changed the dynamics of, of what's going on? I think it's been really great to, to have these private companies kind of injecting their passion and their vision and their, I guess, just the way they attack the, the area and the space and trying to eliminate bureaucracy that I think sometimes when you get big agencies tends to hold innovation back and maybe stifle it in a way. So it's great to see these new players coming up and accomplishing what people said would never be possible. And it'll be neat to see as more startups pop up from different countries around the world, actually what we're able to accomplish and maybe get to Mars sooner rather than later. <laughs> there is an element at the moment, though, there's a lot of male bravado around this, you know, mm -hmm. who's got the biggest rocket. And of course, now the the, the, the Boeing uh, came out and said that they're, they're going to actually try to beat uh, Elon Musk to Mars. Uh, so uh, has it been difficult, you know, for you, I guess, participating and entering into this field as, as a woman? 
given the, the sort of the very male-dominated nature of the space, space industry until now? I think I've been very lucky in my career. I haven't had too many challenges being a woman in a non-traditional field, field as they call it. I think as a Canadian, that's been the bigger challenge. Our space program is actually pretty small. There aren't a lot of opportunities to work at space exploration companies on space technology. And working in the United States as a Canadian is very difficult because of a law called ITAR, which prevents foreign nationals from knowing aerospace and defense knowledge. So it's more been a barrier because of my nationality trying to get into this field and and make an impact you you actually ended up working for nasa though in the end didn't you i did have an internship there what was it like it was it was unreal and the, the reason it was such a privilege for me to be there is because i had applied for a program called a space exploration scholarship through the canadian space agency and it was an opportunity for only one Canadian to intern for a summer. And I actually applied for it four times, was rejected all four <laughs> times. And then after the fourth rejection was just so frustrated that I picked up the phone and called the chief of the Office of Higher Education at NASA to just, just to get try just to try and get feedback on my application and ended up getting the internship position offered to me. So for every hour that I spent there, I spent ten times as long trying to get myself there and then being surrounded by engineers and technicians in their like bunny suits in the clean rooms working on technology that's in space right now was amazing. Do, do you think there's quite a different culture still at a place like NASA than there is somewhere at like SpaceX in the way they approach problems? Oh, that's a good question. I, I mean, I don't really have firsthand knowledge of what it's like working at SpaceX, but I imagine, yeah, there's probably a different go-getter attitude, like, let's just attack this, do it, higher expectations, maybe. But I mean, at the end of the day, everyone has that same goal. They want to put things into space that are going to answer unknown questions and could benefit us here on Earth or teach us something about Earth or the planets. It's just one of the things I find so interesting about the way that it seems that the hardware side of, of the space is evolving is that it's almost like these new commercial operators view it like they're building an iPhone. They're using sort of quite commercially available parts, uh, the kinds of things that would be used for consumer technology, whereas the traditional approach to the space industry is about, you know... Custom parts. Totally custom, proprietary yeah. systems. Yes. Uh, incredible Protecting complexity. Protecting your IP. Massive redundancies. Yeah. Um, and you work you work for MDA, MDA yes. that's right. Uh, have, you, have you noticed a shift in culture as well? Uh, a little bit. I think it depends on what type of program you're working for. If if it's a NASA program, for example, then I think that's still rooted in the tradition, uh, the custom parts, the safety, the reliability, redundancy. Whereas maybe if you have a program like a DARPA program, which is the Defense Advanced Research Project Agency, I yeah. believe, um, they're really about just cr- coming up with these wild ideas and then finding contractors to help make those wild ideas a reality. So it really depends on on who your customer is. As somebody who's, who's a rocket scientist, what, what are the sort of the big challenges for people now you know, that we now need to overcome in order to, I guess, make some of these dreams of going to Mars and, and, and I guess interstellar travel more realistic? For me, one of the big things I love talking about, and we chatted about about it a bit earlier is this idea of satellite servicing and satellite repair. So to get to those places, you have to move beyond Earth orbit. Are satellites repaired now or are they kind of just... There have been some um, 
human servicing missions. So for example, when Hubble was first launched, there was an issue with one of its mirrors. So Mm. the images that they were getting back were blurry and they launched a number of astronaut servicing missions. Um, There's been some robotic like uh, replacement of parts on the space station and so forth, but never like a servicing satellite docking with a broken down satellite and fixing it. So the idea would be having robotic arms that could do maintenance work on satellites be launched into orbit with, uh, you could call it like a space tow truck. It would dock with a satellite that's run out of propellant or has broken parts and then fix it so that it's usable again. Right. So right now, um, the mantra of the satellite industry is to launch new satellites into orbit to replace ones that have broken down so that we can continue to meet a growing demand. But What happens to the old satellites? Do they just you know burn up in the atmosphere or they just After float around? a certain number of years they'll probably eventually burn up in the atmosphere otherwise they either stay in their orbit or they might be maneuvered into a graveyard orbit so that's like moving a broken down car into a shoulder lane but, but it must be an increasingly difficult computational task keeping track of all of this absolutely and there's different junk. sizes of debris you could have satellites the size of a school bus whereas you could have debris the size of a marble and you have millions of those sizes and you're trying to track all of those and as we continue to launch new satellites into orbit it's going to become a growing problem but, but even a, a marble traveling around the earth at high speed is, is dangerous, dangerous right? absolutely yeah <laughs> i think i saw on twitter a couple of weeks ago pictures that the astronauts had taken of like a, a cracked window from a piece of debris that had hit it so they're actually constantly maneuvering the space station out of the way of debris So the orbital environment is a bit sight unseen for us. We don't really think about it like we would if we saw garbage on our streets or in our neighborhoods. We've started to become better about taking care of the earth and our planet, recycling. We haven't extended that to the orbital environment because we're not immersed in it on a daily basis. But I think that's something we need to do, have accountability for the environments we explore and kind of have a leave no trace policy. Right. I mean, it, it was simpler doing this when there was really only two countries, uh, the US and, and uh, the USSR, that were essentially had the ability to launch things in space. But now it seems that not only are multiple companies doing it, there are multiple countries all with their own Yeah, countries programs. all around the world. Even North Korea yeah. <laughs> is doing it. Um, so uh, is this a problem that, that can ultimately just be solved with some sort of uh, international agency or, or is it just a computational problem? Uh, I think it's technical. I think it's a bit political. Right now, there's no overarching international regulations that would say you have to dispose of your satellite at the end of its life or repair it or maintain it. So it would be a matter of having the infrastructure in place to technically do it, which yeah. is risky. It's a, it's not an easy thing to do. And then having the politics in place to enforce it and make sure that countries around the world are adhering to those rules. One of the areas I was really fascinated to see was the emergence of these um, low-cost microsatellites yeah. um, in sort of low Earth orbit. Can you talk a little bit about that? It's it's really neat to see kind of this this growth in like nanosats and microsatellites. And I don't know if you've heard companies like OneWeb are trying to launch like 900 plus constellations to provide uh, space-based internet. Oh, wow. Which is really interesting because to me, you kind of have this, I guess, guess ethical question in a way where you're doing a great thing by providing internet to developing countries but then at the same time you've just launched a thousand cluster satellite into orbit that 
is adding to our problem of space debris and junk orbiting around the Earth. And presumably anyone trying to launch into space will now have to navigate around these this ring of microsatellites. Yeah, yeah. And so I guess the one good thing about the smaller satellites is that they do deorbit faster. So it's not like waiting 25 years or so for a larger satellite to deorbit. But we still have a growing number of satellites and it's just going to keep growing as our demand for the the technologies that rely on satellites keeps growing. A big part of this, the possibility of this, is just the costs have come down. Because I, I remember when I was growing up, uh, the, the big story of the day was the Iridium network. Mm-hmm. And, and that was like this extraordinary uh, thing that they'd achieved. And of course, the company failed and no one bought those expensive phones. But but now you can do what they did now at, at a much lower cost. Yeah, and I think it kind of feeds back into our earlier conversation about the emergence of commercial space and private companies, which are now getting into the satellite industry and, and making that more accessible. Well, besides space-based internet, what are other uses of uh, uh, these, these microsats? Uh, they could be doing like uh, monitoring of Earth atmosphere, uh, oh, like a lot imaging. of science, imaging, right. a lot of science-related tasks. There's a lot of um, conservationists out there that are doing, trying to do neat things with satellites as well. Right. So, so it's almost becoming an, another platform for digital innovation. Yeah, in that's a great way to put it. Huh. Um, I, I guess a lot of people watched the the animation of um, Elon Musk's vision for a kind of an. I think he called it the interplanetary transport network. Or it was it was typical, you know, SpaceX. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, you 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 build the visualization of the trailer before you you build the rockets. What what's your sense of the, the whole I guess mission to Mars and how far away do you think we really are from building a rocket like that? And, uh, I don't. I mean, when you have a player like Elon Musk who proves time and time again that he does what he says, you, you have to kind of think at the back of your mind it's closer than we think it's going to be as someone who loves adventure and the outdoors and I feel like I kind of have a passion for our environments I I wonder about colonizing another planet and sending people to another planet we don't do the greatest job here of taking care of a place that we're lucky to call home at least Mars is already ruined (laughs) but do you know what I mean like I guess there's you you don't buy the whole hedge against us screwing up this planet (laughs) (laughs) what what uh, I mean would you take the one-way ticket no no and yeah no (laughs) (laughs) why there's so many things that I would like to do here and see here and explore here and ways that I feel I could make a difference that I would love to go if I got to come back. I just wouldn't want it to be one way. Yeah, and I think that's that's the. I mean, that's the interesting thing about his vision for it is that you know you'd be better off building a city there and sending more people there than yep. shuttling people back and forth. Yes, absolutely, and guaranteed you will find the people who will do that without <laughs> without a doubt. Well, I'm Australian, so I mean, you know, I I'm used to this idea of rounding up convicts and troublemakers and sending them somewhere to start a new colony. So, you know, we, we were built on that on that idea, uh, but but it, it is. I, I think what's interesting is that the kind of the the space industry now the the uh, uh, I guess the evolutionary curve is starting to look more like consumer electronics in terms yeah. of the the pace of change and the and the, the I guess the rapid cycle times of, of innovation. Yeah, absolutely, and I think as, as costs come down and materials become more available, and we understand more about advanced materials that. 
that trend is exactly what's going to happen. What are some of the other things that people involved in this industry are, are trying to crack at the moment? Oh, that's a good question. I mean, we just saw the end of the Rosetta mission, so they sent the oh, UA lander. Tell me about that. So that was a European space agency uh, over a decade-long project of sending a lander to an asteroid, which had never been done before, and they just crashed the Rosetta lander into uh, the comet I think a couple of days ago, and it was just this great achievement in science and the culmination of, of years and years of hard work to try and understand something foreign and again, a, a world first that had never been done before. Um, there's of course the Hubble Space Telescope, there's the James Webb Space Telescope, which is the next generation massive science telescope that's going to be launched, I think 2018 is still the right. date for that one. What, what will that do that the Hubble... Was that, well, I mean, how does it extend on Hubble's capabilities? Uh, I think in different environments completely. I, I don't know a whole lot about James Webb, so I'm kind of outside my expertise on that one. But I think just more powerful imaging that it's able to do, the, the locations, what it's going to be able to photograph. It, it's um, one of the things that I know you're very interested in is, uh, you know, adventure and exploration. Um, and you see the link to that in technology. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah, I, I guess one of the fundamental aspects I see in exploration is curiosity, kind of having that kid-like wonder for the world, just awe for things around us and questioning how things work. You remember the Explorer Society, right? The Explorers Club, yeah, yeah. yeah. And um, I think with technology, you need to have that same innate sense of curiosity and being able to question how things work and understanding how things fail in order to better understand how they work. And what I would love to see more is for people to have a deeper appreciation and understanding for the things we rely on on our everyday lives. Uh, for example, our cell phones. We all use our cell phones texting, talking. We've all dropped our cell phones on the ground and the back cover pops off and we just put it right back on. But do we ever stop to just take a look at the inside and see what's in there, what's powering the communication. Or we all drive vehicles, cars, buses. We all go to gas stations. Do we stop to think where the gas tank in is our car and how does the gas get from there to the engine? Well, what, why do you think that's important to understand that? I mean, there's a sense to which technology succeeds when it disappears. I mean, most people can't even explain like electricity. Yeah. <laughs> I, I guess I'm just a, a big proponent for being able to think intelligently about the world we live in and validate information presented to us. And I think that is a stepping stone to be to becoming a more science literate population around the globe. And when you have a more science literate population, you can start to tackle even more problems and innovation and, and help feed that back into positive change in terrestrial applications. Right. Well, what, what does science literacy mean to you? Uh, I mean, some people think that you should teach kids how to program or mm. uh, other people think you should teach kids how to use Twitter, which just seems like mindlessly stupid. Yeah. Uh, but, but there must be like a, a middle ground in between um, that gives you, as you say, like a, a basis for when you look at the back of your iPhone, you've got a sense for how the components work together. Yeah, I think in a way it's, it's in inquiry-based learning and experiential learning. So right. not being necessarily presented with the answers, but having to ask questions to lead you down a path that'll get you to the answers. And on that path, that leads to more questions and more wonder. Which is the essence of the scientific method, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. Right. And, and if you were going to change education, when you think about the things in your 
upbringing and education that led you onto this path? What were the things that resonated with you? 100% hands-on extracurricular projects. I, I remember growing up being taught to study your textbooks, read your books, get A's, but my most valuable learning experiences were helping build a solar-powered car, putting a car on the road that was powered by the sun and getting to drive it from Texas to Calgary, learning how to fly a plane, so getting behind the inside and internals of an aircraft, learning how to read the instruments. You can't buy that type of experience, and it's so powerful when you're immersed in the real world working on actual engineering projects. Right. So, I mean, the whole maker movement, in a way, mm-hmm. 100%. is a good example yeah. of, of how you could teach kids to be more hands-on with yeah. this Yeah. It's, it's one thing to read it, but it's another to, to have those materials in your hand and, and try and put them together and make things and create. I, I'd always looked at this more originally in the sense of computational thinking, you know, the ability to think like algorithms and computers, but I hadn't considered the, the practical hands-on almost real engineering experience as well of, of how things work yeah so when you when you look forward to the things you're interested in doing next what what are they because you tell me a bit about the work you're doing with mda you're mainly working on these, these autonomous robotic systems right yeah so now i'm actually working on the european space agency's exomars rover program right. so we're doing the chassis and locomotion system for a rover they're trying to launch in 2020 and that's this is sort of the upgrade to the discovery uh, so this is actually the first time ESA is going to land a rover oh, on Mars. Okay, so right. this is their this first is the try at their learning, learning how to do it. And it's, it's hard. It's a challenge, which is kind of what makes engineering great, that problem-solving aspect of it. So tell, tell me a bit more about it. Uh, so they, it's a two-part mission. The ExoMars 2016 mission launched already. That's expected to land in... I think a couple of weeks actually on Mars. So th- they were kind of um, sending a lander to help practice and rehearse the entry, descent, and landing system. And then they also have an orbiter that's going to be uh, circling Mars and kind of studying the atmosphere. And then ours is the second part launching in 2020, which is actually the rover searching for signs of life like most other rovers. And then really ESA's first foray into seeing if we can do this. Can we put a rover on another planet? It's not like designing a, a phone where you can always do a recall if, like, you know, the Samsung ones blow up. I and mean, once you set it, you you can't do much. Yeah. Uh, so when you're building a product like this, which you have no ability to really tinker with after you send it, how do you do that? I mean, what are some of the things that you have to think about that you wouldn't think about for something that you're able to actually able to service on the ground? Uh, so, well, lots of testing goes into a project like like this. So you would have um, lots of different models and risk reduction hardware that you would start doing tests on to prove that it could land on Mars, whether it's taking your hardware to extreme temperatures, um, blowing dust at it, or simulated Martian soil to see what happens to your mechanics when you get adhesive media (laughs) in it. Just Massive redundancy, right? Yeah, a lot of redundancy and basically trying to eliminate your risks early on in the program so that you can proceed with getting your parts, manufacturing, and, and having a system that will work when you launch it. Do you think eventually, you know, with 3D printing and stuff, that, that these, um, I guess, space hardware that we build will, to some extent, will be able to create spare parts over there? Oh, yeah, 100%. I, I think they have a 3D printer on space station Yeah, I thought now, the, the ISS made, made in space. Yeah, yeah. I, I think that's really starting to revolutionize materials and how we get access to parts and 
helping not have to launch all of your provisions in one in one go being able to sustain yourself the, the space station is, an ex- is a great example of the kind of international collaboration you're talking about but you know when they I, I don't know a lot about the back history to that but was there a sense of a master plan for that or was it just sort of emerged piecemeal over time no I, there was definitely a master plan but i think as you accomplish tasks that you set out to do and build your capabilities you can start to grow your initial vision and increase the scope and do things that you never expected to be able to do like capturing spacex's dragon capsules and birthing them to the <laughs> space station using a robotic arm and that's the fascinating thing about technology and innovation is how you can adapt it over time to meet different needs do you think in the future as we sort of expand our capacity and build more space stations that we're likely to build it brand new or you'll find in 50 years that the heart of the original ISS is still at the center of a, of a new space station? Oh, that's a good question, actually. I've never been asked it. I just wonder whether the, it's so difficult getting stuff up there. Whether you yeah, just, whether you, you would just, reuse You just end up building something. It's, it's almost like this kind of you know, crazy technological favela in space, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, or it, it's just, it's actually, if you can, if you can build mega structures out there, it's simply just to start from scratch. Yeah, I don't, I don't know if I have an answer to that question. It's, <laughs> it's an interesting thought. I mean, you also have companies like Bigelow Aerospace doing these inflatable space structures. Yeah, I saw so that, right? Sending up compact um things and then being able to create that terrifies me though you know i mean i think it's scary enough when you think about being up in a gigantic coke can but being in a a giant inflatable balloon between you and all that radiation just strikes me as terrifying yeah yeah but it's stepping stones right stepping stones to a to whatever is next in the future of space you're right though i mean we we often get seduced by the i guess the, the the virgin intergalactic marketing you know the idea of space tourism space hotels but the real strides are being made at the moment in the in the quite um, everyday practical things you know about that the ability to reuse rockets to service satellites to um to repair things that are already up there yeah so what, what do you think are the the greatest risks i mean space junk is is, is definitely one of them are there other things that I guess are the the negatives or the risks to, to to this new sort of decentralized commercial space endeavors that we're seeing in the world. Well, I mean, the, the one thing about commercial side yet is that they haven't flown everyday people into space, right. and accidents in space do happen. I mean, there there was an, unfortunately the tragedy with with um, Virgin a couple years ago. Yeah, with the testing. And it's it's going to happen again. It's. It's something that is unavoidable and it'll be interesting to see how the commercial space industry reacts to that and is able to adapt and keep their momentum Especially going. because if it is surveillance, it's probably going to be some very famous, very rich people that are going to get blown po- up. Yeah, possibly. It's a, sort of a Titanic type yeah, moment. <laughs> yeah, so it'll get lots of press and coverage and... Of course, then you'll have people saying, "Well, why are we doing this? What What's the point? Why is it worth the risk?" And well, there's an element to that with some of these new nations. I, I noticed that England recently decided to halt foreign aid to India because they said, "If you're going to afford a space program, you you don't need foreign aid." Mm. Um, and, and so there is a question, which is, you know, what are the real benefits of investing in space when you have so many problems on the ground? Well, I I mean, hundred percent, the research that we do for space 
working on space technologies feeds back into spin-offs here on Earth and results in so many positive technologies. Not just Teflon, that right? Benefit. No, not just Teflon. <laughs> I mean, a great example is the Canada Arms. That robotic technology was spun off into the medical industry. So there's a robot at the University of Calgary and the Foothills Hospital that is used to perform brain surgery. So right. really and that's a variation of this of the of robotic of space the, arms. Yeah, the Canada Arms. So it's it's really amazing how technology built for space can have positive applications here on Earth and actually benefit us. And people don't often realize that. And I guess it, it also impacts the, the education and the training of the people involved as well. Yeah, and just inspiring the everyday population to dream big and to, to want to go into these fields. I mean, the best way to recruit young people to science and tech and engineering is to inspire them by working on amazing, innovative creative projects not just stargate yeah <laughs> <laughs> but you, you you never did tell me what you really hope to do i i, I guess ultimately you, you want to be an astronaut right yeah so the canadian space agency just announced a new recruitment campaign uh they're hiring two new astronauts by august next year so i put my name in the ring for that so fingers crossed well, you're, you're on Justin Trudeau's Instagram. I mean, that, that, that's got to count for something. I actually got to meet him as well, which was amazing. <laughs> Did Justin put in a good word? <laughs> Hopefully I, I impressed him with my conversation and questions. <laughs> well, Natalie, it's been a great pleasure having you on the show. Uh, I'm sure one of these days you'll be looking back down at us uh, from great altitude. Uh, so, you know, good luck with it all. And thank you very much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Between Worlds. For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash betweenworlds.